Hello, I'm Gareth. Welcome back to Somewhere on Earth. And it's Tuesday, the 5th of December, 2023. We're here in London and we have voices today from Iceland and Scotland. And one of our voices today comes from Galen Boddington uh, and uh, studio expert, presenter's friend, co-host. I never quite know how to refer to you, but we've known each other for ages. We You're have, yes. a regular right here on this podcast. And we love hearing your expertise and the number of brilliant ways that you get out of trouble, basically. <laughs> That's what you're here to do. Um, but also, just before we get into the show, you, you're always so busy. So what bits of tech wonder have you been up to? recently? Well, I've been working hard on a a new project, a new research to practice project will come out as a a real thing somehow called My AI Hybrid Biotwin. And I'm basically through my university professorship and I'm looking at um, the whole area of human twins, digital twins and the complex amalgamation now that's starting to happen, but exploring these multiple digital twins to see whether we could have our own digital twin that was with us from birth, that grew up alongside me, learned about the world alongside me, collaborated with me and represented me across time and space and even beyond death. So looking at both sides of that, the the digital twin itself, the modelling, the amalgamation, you know, all these different things that are out there, but also at the data ethics in it and data ownership. Oh, yeah, huge issues there. Yes. And, I mean, just really briefly then, the digital twin idea. When you say that I, for instance, well, let's just say, imagine I'm a baby and I've just been born and I'm going to have my own digital twin for life. Is Do they, what do they, scan me? Do they take my genome and put it into a computer? How does How does the digital twin happen from birth? Well, that's part of the research. And I'm oh. working with about 15 experts from different areas, some from that medical area, genomic, you know, etc. Others from fitness and health and well-being, of course, but also from training, from the AI side, the chat GPT model of the assistant, you know, the, the person that's working with you, person, the software that's working with you all the time. Um, and yeah, it's actually how do we link our biometrics in? Well, that's happening in fitness terms anyway. How do we link our biomarkers in? Yes, it's starting to happen through implants and through medical stuff. How do we link in our intelligence, our learning through those different ways of an AI possibly growing with us? So, yep, that's going to be coming out across the next two years. And I can keep popping in some bits about it, if you like, as well. It's so fascinated to keep up with that as the research develops it's this early stage. And I, I feel that there's just so far to go on it, obviously. There is a long is, way to go uh, on it. Why you're... Uh, researching it and do a really quick plug for the university where's it happening oh it's university of greenwich that i'm Marvelous. linked to and i'm also working with um uh, kingston university on this project too great galen thank you all right let's uh, crack on with the rest of the program and coming up today is it a programme? Is it a podcast? Is it a show? Oh, gosh, we, we evade all definition. Anyway, we do have today some technology that could save your life. Um, it has some automation, some infrared, uh, there are drones involved, and there's AI. Uh, there's bound to be AI. Um, also today, the app where Icelanders have been finding out how related they are to the singer Björk. But there is a serious story here as well about research into inherited diseases. Oh, and also... Uh, just while I remember to keep my promise from last week, I'll tell you why we tend to hate the sound of our own voice in recordings. 
And uh, it seems, actually, to be honest, as if we liked the sound of our own voices a bit too much last week, because we had one listener comment along the lines of, love the show, but it was a bit long. All right, agreed. Hint taken. So we're hitting the brevity button this week. So let's crack on with it. All right, first, it's a lifeboat and it has no crew. So it goes out in dangerous waters, so no human crews have to risk their lives. That's the basic idea, but let's get loads more detail now from Sam Mayle, who is the founder of the company Zellim. Um, Sam, welcome to the podcast. Good to meet you all. Uh, delighted to be on the show. Awesome. Right. Okay. So let's get into a bit of the background here, which I suppose is a little bit obvious that we know that uh, lifeboats go out in very dangerous waters often, and there is a risk to human life. Uh, Just pick that that up for us and how taking that risk, you decided to try and develop something from that. My background was uh, a sailor working at sea, and unfortunately, I was involved in a in a couple of fatal accidents where I lost a couple of mates. And um, the key uh, thing we're, we're always battling against is the time frame, uh, the time frame to find people in the water, time frame to rescue people in the water, and then that coupled with the risk element. And people assume you you put your your hero capes on and and off you go, jump in the lifeboats, and everything's going to be fine. The reality is is quite different, and lifeboats are actually the third biggest killer of seafarers predominantly through testing and then operations as well wow i mean which of course the whole thing is that you know going in after one casualty and then creating other casualties of course if uh, the the risk assessment is wrong or if there isn't time for a risk assessment because things are happening so quickly uh, so tell me about this lifeboat of yours you've been putting it through sea trials as i understand and we're talking here about an autonomous lifeboat no crew involved uh, describe it for us so the lifeboats we're building are, are exactly as you suggest. They are uncrewed lifeboats. They use an AI-based vision system to autonomously detect people in the water. Uh, they've then got a conveyor recovery system to pull people out of the water and then a casualty handling platform once the guys are, are on board to uh, ultimately rescue those those casualties quickly and take yeah. the decision out of the master's hands. Am I going to launch the rescue boat if, uh, in particular if the weather's bad? So let's talk about the machine vision. Then I do want to talk about that sort of conveyor thing that, that hauls the um, casualty on board. So first of all, then, give us a sense of the technology, you know, the innovation here in these very difficult conditions. You've got lots of water everywhere. It's salt water. It's very corrosive. Everything is acting against you. And yet you have to have uh, machines that have reliable vision. So tell me about that. So the AI solutions and the, the, the command and control are sort of off-the-shelf components as, as far as possible. And the, the novel bit about what we've created is a, a patented way of image processing to, to denoise the marine environment, take out the waves, take out the spray, mist and the fog, and then uh, overlay that with AI. So we've built what we believe is the world's biggest um, data set of, of people and, and casualties in the water and then trained our models over the last three years in partnership with the UK and um, US Coast Guard to really give that high reliability in the system. 
Well, look, I mean, that, that already sounds like a, a huge challenge. And I'll put this to Galen as well, if you want to pick it up, Galen, that you've got, got to spot a casualty. So you train your machine learning with lots of images of casualties. But for one thing, the uh, vessel is on the water. So it's probably it's not as if you have a, a top-down view looking down on the casualty, although you're probably about to tell me that drones are involved and we'll hear about that aspect. But just, um, Galen, initially about your reaction to this very challenging machine learning environment. No, it's fascinating. And I think you've done great work here bringing together um, the Coast Guards, UK and US to work on it and having this incredible five million images, I think it said in one of your reports, um, of real life people in water taking away the the aspects of it so that I guess the AI is able to tell the difference between, I'm going to ask a really basic question here, a person who needs rescuing from water and something like a boy that's got lost in the sea. Yeah, absolutely. So the uh, as you guys know, the fundamentals of, of AI is pattern matching, essentially. So that's where the, the intelligent labelling comes in. We also label within the system boys, flotsam and jetsam, life rafts, boats, these kind of things. So the system, if you're looking for stuff like that, can throw that up as a, a detection. Or if you're not looking for it, it actively ignores it. Interesting. So this AI that you've developed could also be used to indicate where in the ocean there are there is rubbish and stuff pollution hanging out or floating around. Absolutely, yeah. Certain customers are asking for exactly as you say pollution monitoring and marine mammal monitoring, believe it or not. Well, wow. Yeah, I mean, yes. if you've gone to all the trouble of developing the model, yeah. then it's great if you can uh, use it in other ways. But what about that point then, that the vessel is at sea level, and so just in that kind of environment, especially with lots of waves all over the place, it might be quite difficult to spot anything and, and even be able to discern it from a casualty to flotsam and jetsam. Because I know you use drones in some way. I'm just wondering if, if part of it is that a drone is accompanying the lifeboat in order to get more of a kind of as it were bird's eye or drone's eye vision that's the optimum the higher you are the easier it is and the, obviously the less movement you have so software we've built is totally sensor agnostic so you can you can run it off virtually any any sensor it's a relatively small boat in quite a big sea and um, so we use um, software stabilization to stabilize the image and then an intelligent track so if the software picks up a person and you're not always going to see them if you're in a in a big sea state you everything's moving and you might only see them for a fraction of a second and so as soon as the software has detected them it then puts on an intelligent track to go where are we likely to to see that that person again there's a lot going on under the bonnet and, of course, all of it being processed in real time. So, yeah, it's not as if you can just get a load of data and render it <laughs> later on. But what about, I'm intrigued about how you haul the casualty out of the water. And uh, at the beginning of your answer, you did mention this, well, it's kind of like a belt, isn't it? A bit like what you have in the supermarket with your groceries going along it, but at an angle so that it get points down into the sea so that uh, somebody can be hauled aboard. Tell me more. It's a conveyor recovery system, so it's not that dissimilar to a conveyor that you'd see in a supermarket, or or indeed picking potatoes out of a out of a field. We've designed a kind of a frame around that that's uh, motion compensated, so as the the boat is is pitching and rolling in the in the seaway, and um, the conveyor moves independently of the boat. 
is then submerged about half a meter uh, below the surface of the water. So as the boat drives towards that um, person, it's going to hit you approximately at at waist level. And then once you've made contact with the conveyor, you're then brought up onto the vessel in sub 10 seconds. And then we've designed a, a casualty handling platform then that looks at the human uh, mechanics of, of how, how, how bodies work um, to then move the move the casualty then back into the, the survival area. And then once you're on board, you've then got um, access to two-way uh, communication and remote telemedicine. That's fascinating and really well thought through. It's amazing that you can have this immediate kind of platform which actually is helping you assess yourself and, as you said, bringing to the forefront your analytical side of actually being able to, with telepresence medicine team, be able to analyse yourself and what you need rather than realising you're out of a sea and actually you've got to move on to actually helping um, the other end, the remote end, where you've got the experts, um, know how bad you are and whatever help you need as soon as a, a bigger vessel maybe reaches you. Yeah, absolutely. That's uh, that's exactly the idea. And uh, Sam, just before we wrap it up then, where are we at at the moment then? Are, are, you, are you doing sea trials? Have you got that far? Or is it out there actually in the high seas saving people's lives yet? So the first vessel is being painted today. Uh, so we've done a number of prototypes. I've done over a thousand rescues, and then the, the first certified version will be in the water in January, and then that's that's going to customers in the North Sea next year to go and save people's lives if required. All right. Will you stay in touch with us as you go along? Tell us, tell us how you're getting on. We'll certainly tell you how we're getting on, but follow us on uh, LinkedIn, on our website, Facebook, etc. Fantastic work, really very well thought through and detailed, detailed work into both the psychology and the technology and how to link that up. Yeah. I'm sure you'll find, and I'm, I'm pretty certain there will be multiple other uses for this that expand and help you um, as a company as well. I hope so. Sam Mayle, massive thanks uh, for being here on Somewhere on Earth. That is Sam Mayle. He's with Zelim, so Z-E-L-I-M, if you want to look them up. And we will link uh, Sam uh, to you and, and Zelim from our own social media as well. So, Sam, thanks a lot. Thanks ever so much, guys. Chat again in the new year. Will do. All right. And speaking of social media, uh, I'll give you all, all the main kind of details at the end of the uh, program, show, podcast, whatever we are. But, uh, you know, just, just, just throw one in here, just uh, Twitter stroke X, then uh, we are at SOEP Tech. So that's Soap Tech. And we're on Facebook as well. We're also on WhatsApp. Yes, yes. And we have a message. We sure do. So this comes from a listener who uh, took up our uh, plea, really. I was going to say an offer, a plea (laughs) last week to uh, leave a voice note for us. So, And they did this, by the way, to this number, international code 44-7486-329-484-7486-329-484. And um, yeah, have a little listen. Hello from Gauri Abiram, Hyderabad, India. I had been a long-term listener of the BBC Digital Planet podcast and was very disappointed when it ended after 21 years in March 2023. As Gareth would say, I was massively happy to find Anya, Gareth, Glenn Boddington, Angelica Mari and others coming together for the Somewhere on Earth podcast. 
Many thanks to Mr. Nana Bofor, CEO Kintes, and others who have invested in this podcast. It was nice to listen to Mr. Bofor on the second episode, speaking about the importance of podcasting technology as today's equivalent of the transistor radio, which democratizes knowledge and information sharing. I could relate to him when he was speaking about back in 1989 when he was a 17-year-old in Ghana listening to the BBC World Service on his radio and how the radio made him feel so close to events happening thousands of miles away which podcasting does today. I feel the same way while listening to this podcast. Best wishes to the Somewhere on Earth podcast team for this podcast to grow and develop in the months and years ahead. Oh, lovely to hear from Gary there, isn't it? It is, isn't it? Oh, yes. Yeah, one of our favourite people, actually, and (laughs) full of great ideas and outputs herself, yeah. Sure. And, of course, we we would like to say we don't have favouritism to our listeners, apart from just one or two. (laughs) Uh, So we will make that exception for Gary. Um, And I think think justified favouritism because she just got right in there and left us a voice note. So, yeah, they're beginning to trickle in now, these voice notes. And I think it's partly because listeners took note of my encouraging words last week, not to worry about what your voice voice sounds like folks you all sound brilliant so don't worry about it leave us a, a voice note um gave you that number at the top just jog back on your podcast if you want to go and listen to that number again okay now um here's something rather exciting though um you know the famous Icelandic singer Björk? Uh, I think yes, you're a fan aren't yes, you? Yes I am. Um, well we've only gone and tracked down one of her relatives. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Bit of a scoop. Um, so who is this relative? Is it a sibling maybe or a cousin? Uh, well actually someone related to her uh, well eight times removed so not a very <laughs> not very close Quite at all really yes <laughs> so look i know that sounds a little bit tenuous but it all makes sense when you discover that icelanders love their genealogy and of course many people in that country they love their technology so if you bring all that together and um, you end up with is landing a bock now, this is a free database and app that holds the genealogical details of almost the entire population going back to the 9th century when the first Viking and Celtic settlers arrived there. Now, Islandikabok, the name of this brilliantly named app, it actually means the Book of Icelanders. And it's proven to be a real hit as users trace relatives or indeed find out how related they are to Björk. Uh, but just as crucially, all that information about people and families enables important research into inherited genetic diseases. And in fact, back in um, 2013, in my BBC days, uh, I interviewed Carrie Stephenson, about the app and he's an Icelandic geneticist he's also founder and CEO of Decode Genetics and a decade on wouldn't you just know it but uh, our reporter mate Shnazana Churchich um, she was hanging out in Iceland so she dropped in to see Carrie for an update and uh, obviously the first thing that Shnazana wanted to know was a bit about how the app works so on the way to meet Carrie um, she also dropped in with a friend called Anna Christian Dottir and together they just checked out the app. Open the, the sure. airport. Yep. I just put in East book. It's here. And here it is. Just put in my phone number, and then my phone will act as a key or something to get to everything I have. I'm here. What do you want to search? Just someone famous like Björk. Do you want to see if you're related to her? Yeah, why not? Björk. And then 
I need to know her birthday so I can see who is who. And sometimes people put their information in, like this Björk, she's dead now, but she was a business person, da-da-da. This one, another Björk, just was a farmer. And sometimes people actually put their photo, yeah, so we can see them. So are you related to the singer Björk, according to Icelandic book? Pick that. No, not related to Björk. My grand, 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 father related. It's too far apart. So, yeah. So you're related to her, like, six, seven generations down eight, the line? Eight generations. You can see it here. Yeah. So, no, I'm not related to Björk. <laughs> Excellent. It's fun. Yeah. Fun to look at people and see, oh, you're related. Oh. I'm on my way to meet with Kari Stephenson, a founder of Decode, a world's leader in human genetics based here. Decode developed Islandica Bok and use it as one of the tools in research in the field of medical genetics. And I want to start with understanding the root of the national fascination with genealogy. Icelanders have been passionately interested in genealogy for 1100 years. If you look at the old Icelandic sagas that were written thousand years ago, they all begin with a page after page after page of genealogy. And it's interesting, why were they so focused on genealogy? I think that was basically the way of the common man to make sure that he wouldn't be forgotten. And then over the centuries we have continued to be focused on and interested in genealogy. So enormous amount of data on genealogy existed in church records, in books, all over the place. And what we simply did is that, is that we assembled this into a computerized database. The idea behind that, from our point of view, was to have the genealogy as a, some sort of denominator in our genetics work. But because we were taking advantage of data that existed because of the interest of the people in the country, we thought it would be appropriate to provide access to Icelandic Gebog to everyone in the country, and we have done that. And it has been extraordinarily popular. People are constantly plowing through the genealogy database, trying to figure out who is related to whom, etc. What are the applications, or what are the tools that are developed out of this database? The only reasonable use of this data is to help you to figure out how some human assets are moved from one generation to the next. And when you're working on rare diseases, it's very important to know whether they go in families or not. So having the genealogy database can help you a lot when you're trying to develop your first understanding of human disease. What is it that makes some people vulnerable, makes some people be at a very high risk of a disease and other of low risk, and some people responding positively to drugs and others don't? You know, what is it? What is the biochemistry behind that? And that is what we have been focusing on. In the interview that you did with uh, Gareth Mitchell, you predicted at that time that there will be tools or applications that would be able to predict the probability of a disease and that people will be able to access their medical records on their smartphones. Do you remember that? Yeah, it only goes to show that one of the things that's shared with you, with the rest of you is the inability to predict what happens in the future, and, <laughs> and I have to accept that. 
But everything is moving in this direction. For example, all of these concerns that people have over privacy when it comes to healthcare information is probably going to be best dealt with by making the individual the keeper of his own healthcare information rather than letting them sit in, in hospitals or clinic that the individual will have a software application where he can download all the healthcare information on himself. I think the world is gradually moving in that direction. And that is basically what I was predicting 10 years ago. As usually, I was far too optimistic. I want to really focus this interview on the future of the works on genetics that you are doing. And then you said it's a healthcare system, it's precision medicine, and uh, something that can be applied worldwide, I guess. The sad thing about the genetics of this work that we are doing, it has pretty much been confined to the study of people of European descent. What you know about the genetics of diseases in Africa, in Southeast Asia... In, in South America is very little. And the healthcare disparity, the difference in access to good healthcare, begins with lack of understanding of diseases in the minorities or in the people of the third world. If you think about the application of human genetics to generate better healthcare for everyone, the next step is to study the genetics of diseases in the third world. And we have already started to do it in a small way. We have started to get material from India, from Africa, and we're beginning to, to study that. Stay with us. We'll be right back. AI is changing the game of business. Will you be on the winning team? I'm Jordan Wilson, the host of the Everyday AI podcast, and your coach to help you learn the X's and O's of AI. Artificial intelligence isn't just a new player in the game, it's a new sport altogether. So if you don't quickly put AI into play, your competitors will run up the score. I've spent my whole life building winning teams, from coaching basketball to working with big players like Nike and Jordan Brand. My next move? Helping you win with Everyday AI. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or on everydayaipodcast.com. Let's tap into AI together and put points on the board. But I guess you can map the methods that you use here. You can take the methods we use here and apply it everywhere. But then it is a matter of financial resources, how we can make sure that um, people in Africa and, and uh, people in India and people in South America can really do the type of work we are doing. I guess it's all down to the funds. The healthcare disparity is just still another expression of the economic disparity in the world. Oh, there you go. There's the genealogical geneticist, <laughs> Carrie uh, Stephenson, and he's speaking there to Shnazana Churchich. We also heard in that piece from Anna Christian Dottir. Now, uh, Glenn Boddington, those, I was kind of, I know, I'm not trying to sound weird here, but I was kind of watching you while we were playing that out. And there's one bit where you smiled quite broadly, which always gives me a hint as to where to go with you in these little kind of two ways afterwards. And that's about the the personal data aspect of all this and the, the way that Carrie is really saying, look, we just need this genetic data. It needs to be in people's hands. And yeah, you, you resonate. Well, you are absolutely right, because... 
<clears throat> I am a big personal data ownership advocate and it kind of links back into what I was talking about at the beginning of the show, this work on the digital human twin side. I do think we should own our own um, personal data, our unique data, like our heartbeat, our breath, etc., which is part of this digital human twin project. It was just wonderful to hear the discussion that happened there where someone else such a brilliant man yeah actually been for years going this is how it has to be and and him saying well maybe you know I was bit th- hoping for a bit of a miracle then but actually now the debate is back on the table and it is because we have got this big issue around digital identity and our ownership of ourselves but today even today hackers actually it's new, in the news today that hackers have got into one of the bigger testing companies 23andMe um, and 6.9 million users, their information has been hacked. It hasn't included DNA, but it's included ancestry breakdown, genetic testing, personalised health. And that's a huge company. So there's no protection. You know, it's, they can't say you'll be more protected by if we own your data or we've got your data. So there's still a long way to look at that and to go on that. And also, of course, there is concerns in those bigger companies, which many people are signing up to. You know, genetic testing companies, ancestry companies too. It's whether two come together. This debate is very much, you know, the the, the genealogy and the health data coming together to help us to work on predicted diseases in people and longevity potentials, you know. But there is still concerns there where there would be specific targeting of particular ethnic groupings through these kind of tracings of ancestry and genetics, yeah. However, another very key point um, that our professor said was that um, he was he was very concerned also that um, there's just so much of this happening around the world, but actually it's pretty much in Western world terms, yeah. Genealogy banks, there, there are genealogy banks and biobanks now all over the world. And the biobanks, of course, hold all the blood tests, all of the, you know, the, the tissues, the, the gene samples as well. They kind of come cross over a bit. Many of them are owned by national governments, etc. Some are private, of course, and some countries like China are very well sorted, as is Europe, he mentions in the, in the report too, um, US, Canada, etc. But that, again, is still a very one, it's very one side, it's not one side, it may be four sided rather than hundreds of sides of the people in the world. And the digital disparity that he mentions, I really completely agree with him. There's, you know, we're getting a kind of, you know, you know, for example, the UK biobank is 94% white and ethnicity, 94% white ethnicity. Now, that is not really reflecting even the UK population, let alone helping us with actually having a unbiased data sets, which can allow prediction to go through because they're biased by the nature of who they're coming from. Yeah, sure. And so medical research that might come from those data sets may be more biased or more likely through data bias to predict outcomes better than in white people than yes, in minority yes. ethnicities. And also for men rather than women. And that's right, one of the big knew? ones yeah, yeah. Is, is women's health. There is not enough data. We tend to, as women, um, you know, take a lot of medicines and have a lot of treatments which have not really been tested on women at all or have not really come through data and prediction which means it's right for women. But it's very interesting this link isn't it between um, genealogy and the the fascination with ancestry which we've all got Mm. (coughs) and you know those big ancestry dot, dot companies 
they're making billions, yeah, because people are fascinated about where they came well, from. We want to know where we came from. We do, but it is utterly linking into now this health data stuff, um, derived family history information on you as an individual, Gareth, you know, can really help know about what chronic diseases that you may encounter in your life. And, and we mentioned there that data breach with um, 23andMe. Now, of course, they're not here to give their side of the story and um, we'll look further into it. But um, well, just briefly, what did happen there? Then? Well, I believe, and it really was, it's new news, yeah, but what happened was that they weren't actually attacked themselves or hacked themselves. What happened was that old park customer passwords, which were somehow out there in the, in the black web anyway, were used to get into their customers and get the data through the customer's use of the use for customers' passwords. Now they've put out immediately telling everyone to change their passwords now. So they've taken immediate action. All right. That's great, Galen. Well, there you go. Well, I think we shall leave it for this week. Um, it's been lovely to have you back here, Galen. Our conversations just go on and on and they're fascinating. But I did say we'd press the brevity button this week. But I do owe the listeners a little bit of science before we go. And you might be interested in this as I well, I think Galen. it's fascinating. This idea. Very, very fascinating. Why area. is it that we don't like the sound of our own voice, or many of us don't, when we hear it played back in a recording? And the very... I'll give you two words right and then i'll expand but bone conduction these are the important words all it is is that when we talk there are two ways that the sound gets from our larynx from our voice box into our brains into our ears um so one way is just through the air like any other sound that's dropping into our ears but the other way is that the vibrations coming from our larynx then resonate out through all that gray matter all that brain and bone in between the larynx and our ears um so it's bone conduction so sound travels different through differently through that kind of matter than it does through the air what it does is it helps the the lower frequencies, the bass sounds more than other sounds, which is why a lot of people perceive that they speak with one of those deeper kind of voices than is actually the case in real life. And so one reason people may not like hearing their voice when it's played back, when of course what they're hearing is what the voice sounds like when it's only just been conducted through the air and it's hit a microphone. Um, what they're hearing is maybe a slightly thinner and reedier version of their voice than they think they actually have. And I'm going to blatantly do some pop psychology here, but I'm going to put it to you, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, that not only is it a bit weird to be presented with that slightly thinner voice than perhaps you thought you had, I think it goes much more deeply than that because our voice is such a big part of our identity. And so to be presented with a version of ourselves that seems so unfamiliar is not just like a bit weird or creeps you out slightly, but it really it is so wrong that it's a very difficult and quite distressing yes, thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, when people say, oh, I just don't like the sound of my own voice, I don't think people should shrug that off. They're not being silly. It's it, this representation of ourselves that is quite different from how we might think of ourselves through our voice. It's really quite a profoundly unnerving thing. So that's not to put people off recording their voices. It's just to say when you, the first time, few times you do hear your voice recorded, you will find it weird. And there's nothing strange about you or vain about you for thinking that. It's entirely normal. But remember that... Everybody else around you hears that other version of you all the time, and they love you for that. Uh, they, you know, and therefore it shouldn't be an issue when you record your voice. I know it might sound weird, but 
Honestly, folks, you just have to understand that's how the rest of the world hears you and it's perfectly fine and you sound great. So there you are. Yeah, fascinating. Yeah. Absolutely great. Yeah. Good really stuff. helpful. Thank you, Gareth. Marvellous. And I've already done the social media, has got that out of the way. So I can just give you an email address, though. Hello at somewhereonearth.co. That'll do. Audio today is by Kaziah Wenham Kenyon and Dylan Burton here at uh, Lanson's team, Fana. The production manager is Liz Tui. I've been today with Ghislaine Boddington, and our editor is Anya Litorovich. So enjoy your voices, folks. See you next time. Bye. 